Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Hi, Reimagining Love listeners. I have a special announcement. The brand new Reimagining Love Workbook, Volume 1, is now on sale on my website. You know, when I set out to create this podcast, I knew that I wanted the lessons and the insights from the episodes to feel tangible and immediately applicable to you and your relationships. As a couples therapist, I've seen time and time again that improving your relationships and your relationship with yourself takes effort and intention and time. We need strategies, we need practices that we can play with, as well as structured spaces to reflect. And sometimes the best way to do this is to put pen to paper, to see what's going on inside of our minds and inside of our hearts. So I decided that I would create companion worksheets for all of the solo deep dive episodes of Reimagining Love. These worksheets contain tables to fill out, relational self-awareness questions to answer, and reflection exercises, all tied to the topic of the episode. And these worksheets have been available to listeners through my newsletter as the corresponding episodes have aired. And now I've updated all of them and we've compiled them into this downloadable, easy to use workbook so that you can conveniently access them all in one place. And at the end of the workbook, you're going to find a glossary of the therapeutic terms that I frequently use, as well as a list of all the podcast episodes thus far organized by topic in case you're seeking support in a particular area at a particular moment. So if you're ready to dive deeper into your relational self-awareness work, click the link in the show notes or head to dralexandrasolomoncom slash RL Workbook to purchase this amazing bundle of resources, which you can use individually or with your partner. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Reimagining Love. I have been so eager to share this episode with you. 
Number one, because I just know to the very marrow of my bones that it's going to move you and change you and support you in so many ways. And number two, because my guest this week is none other than Susan Kane. Susan Kane is the number one best-selling author of Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole, which was an Oprah's book club pick. And Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, which spent nine years on the New York Times bestseller list and which has been translated into 40 languages. Susan's TED Talks have been viewed over 40 million times. LinkedIn named her the top sixth influencer in the world, just behind Richard Branson and Melinda French Gates. Susan is just brilliant, and she has this incredible gift for weaving together research, philosophy, psychology, and spirituality, and then translating it to us in a way that is so touching, affirming, illuminating, and most importantly, healing. In a culture full of enforced positivity that so often pathologizes sadness, nostalgia, and longing, Susan's message is a breath of fresh air and a generous invitation for all of us to embrace the bittersweet threads that run through all of our lives, especially in moments of transition, grief, and change. I'm going to let this beautiful conversation speak for itself, but I hope this exploration of the bittersweet resonates as much with you as it did with me. Welcome, Susan. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Alexandra. So, you know, the heart of the work that I do is what I call relational self-awareness is that, you know, one of the central themes that we work on so much is learning for the sake of ourselves and the sake of our relationships, how to sit ever more comfortably in paradox, how to hold on to the both ands of life that arise within us and between us. And so your book, Bittersweet, is a masterclass in (laughs) sitting ever more comfortably in paradox. So I have a lot of ground I want to cover with you today, but I want to start by asking you the relational self-awareness question. Are you ready for that? I am. Okay. So Susan, what is a growing edge that you're currently working on in one of your important relationships? And what has it been teaching you these days? Well, probably the biggest one right now has to do with the fact that my kids are now teenagers. And so they're going to be leaving for college, you know, in the now it feels like in the very near and realistic future. Even as we're recording this, I had expected that we were spending the evening with one of our kids. We knew the other one had a sleepover, but now now the second one just said, oh, I'm going um, <laughs> to dinner with friends. <laughs> and, and so I actually just sent a text to my husband being like, oh my gosh, the empty nest has come. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so, so I would say that we're grappling with that, but because I wrote this book, you know, and I've been working on Bittersweet really for, I don't know how long, you know, I work on things for a long time. So it's probably been like seven or eight years. So I actually feel like I am so much better prepared for this moment than I otherwise would have been because I've been thinking all this time about rituals of transition, 
And I documented a lot of such rituals from across the world in the book. And one of my favorite ones was from Unknown Tribe, where every year from the moment that their sons are born, the mothers are expected to give up a prized possession once a year. And that's to prepare them for the day that their sons turn 13 and kind of join the adults of the tribe and leave their mother aside. I think about that all the time. So like I did not give up my phone or anything like that. Mm -mm. It's not literal. It's more of a metaphor. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But I really have like thought about that and the poem on children by Khalil Gibran. Do you know that one? I love They Are Of You. Yes. I love that poem. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. It's so, so good. And so I read that poem all the time and I send it to all my friends who have children. And I feel like that poem, maybe I can even read a little bit of it, is helping me with this moment, but it also helped me to be a better mom along the way, even when my kids were very little. So it starts by saying, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. And it goes on to say, their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. I don't know. I I just find that idea so beautiful and also so liberating. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Liberation from all of the anxiety and the worry and the managing and the vigilance into that, yeah, that they don't belong they don't, but they never have belonged to us. Exactly. Exactly. Cause if you, I mean, like, I think the way that modern culture sees it is, oh, they do belong to you until they turn 18 and then they stop belonging. So it's this terrible loss. And if instead you see it as no, they never belonged and, and life never belonged to us. It's always been a transition from one moment to the next. That's all it ever was. It's so much, it's, it's a so much calmer way to go through life to understand that. It really is. Okay, so I'm just going to build right off of that because when our when our kids were little, so we've got 18 and 20, and uh, my husband Todd and I had this realization that the summer and fall of 2023 were going to be this <laughs> these seasons of transition. So Todd and I mark our 25th wedding anniversary in August. We're going to launch our youngest off to college, and we're both going to turn 50. And it's like here, and it's happening. So the other night. Because of you, because of Bittersweet, I had like a little bit of time in the kitchen by myself and the back door was open and the breeze was coming in and I was chopping up sweet potatoes and I turned on very loudly the Susan Cain Bittersweet Spotify playlist. And the first song is Adele, Someone Like You. And so I was singing Adele, top of my lungs, chopping these potatoes, crying. And the tears were not, you know, they were, they were the tears of being in touch with the bittersweet, you know, like just right there with it. And what I think is always, I know this is always how I've been oriented, but what your work does is it gives me permission to just be full-throatedly singing Adele, you know, without needing to shrink it or make it different or analyze it or pathologize it. So I can imagine you and your husband doing that tonight as you kind of sit with the quietness of your house. And I certainly did that the other night, like just sitting with the poignance of all of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so, I mean, it's so interesting that you go right to the place of like, well, without pathologizing it. And your implication, I think, is the default would be that this is 
something semi-pathological to listen to Adele, to, you know, to enjoy something that's in the minor key. And uh, this has just been one of those many things in our culture that I've been scratching my head about from from the time I was little. Like, why is that supposed to be something embarrassing or or pathological? Yeah. I mean, that is where your book begins. What are the powers of the bittersweet melancholic outlook and why have we been so blind to its value? So tell us a bit about your relationship with the bittersweet and why you were why you basically pretty much needed for all of our sake to write this book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, I I felt it with music most acutely, but I think if you're a person who's drawn to, you know, music, poetry, art, nature, whatever it is, you see in there, those domains are suffused with the bittersweet. They're suffused with the sense of impermanence. What is today will not be tomorrow and, and so on. And this, I, I mean, I wrote about this in the book that this came for me to a head when I was, I used to be a lawyer and I was in law school and I was in my early 20s and was listening to some of my favorite bittersweet music. It wasn't Adele, it was something else. Um, and I was blasting it just the way you were with your sweet potatoes. <laughs> and some friends came by the, my dorm room to pick me up to go to class together. And they thought it was hilarious that I was blasting sad music like that. And they were like, why are you listening to this funeral music? Seriously, I thought about that question and about their amusement for the next 25 years. (laughs) Like I could not stop thinking about it. I was like, why did that seem so funny to them? And, And why do I love this music so much? Because I felt in my love for it, something beyond just like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I felt it was one of those questions that was pointing me to like the real deep answers. And I just felt like I had to know what they were. Yep. I am so glad that you followed that tug inside of you because what you created here is is just beautiful and important. And one of the early things you do in the book is you you worked with uh, Dr. David Yaden and Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman to develop a bittersweet quiz. And you do that because you posit that we all have a particular positionality vis-a-vis the bittersweet. Some of us inhabit it like like you and like me. I scored quite high on the quiz. Um, <laughs> inhabit it quite instinctively. Others of us kind of avoid it. Some of us have, are brought into a relationship with bittersweetness later in life or because of things that have happened in our lives. So can you can you give the listener a sense of what would be some cues that would help a listener understand their relationship with the bittersweet. So first of all, if I should say, if you want to take the bittersweet quiz, you could just go to my website mm-hmm. and it's just there. And that's, it's just susankane.net. So it's easy to find. And just to give you a sense of what some of the questions are, it's things like, well, one of them is what I was just referring to before. Do you react intensely to music, art, or nature? Um, there's also, do you find comfort or inspiration in a rainy day? Do you tear up easily at touching TV commercials? And if you're a person who is already starting to recognize yourself <laughs> in these questions, then you probably will score high on this quiz. And, you know, because humans come in such a fascinating variety, mm-hmm. there will be some people maybe listening today who would not recognize themselves at all. Like I did one interview with my friend Angela Duckworth, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. great psychologist who who works on grit. And I don't know if you know Angela, but she's like a very 
funny, hilarious, kind of brisk person. She was like, I just took your bittersweet quiz and I scored a zero. I have nothing. Literally a zero. I have have no score. (laughs) So there really are just so many different ways of being. But I will say what we found is that people who score high on the quiz, they also tend to score high on a bunch of other domains that we could talk about. One of those is uh, proneness to states of awe and wonder and spirituality. And another one is, you know, there's the psychologist Elaine Aaron's measure of high sensitivity, which is the idea that there's about 15% of people who are born with a temperament that predisposes them to just react more intensely to everything, to the negative and to the positive. And that is highly correlated with this bittersweet state of being. That tracks. That makes sense. Yeah. So... As a therapist, you know, I've, I've really found your exploration of the relationship between melancholy and mental health to be so fascinating and so confronting. So could you just say a little bit about uh, how my field, the field of, you know, psychology and psychotherapy has perhaps done some harm? I mean, I think it's, it's my field in conjunction with American culture, sort of minimizing and misunderstanding bittersweetness. Yeah. And I'm so, so glad that you're focused on that because I would love to see that shift in the field of psychology, which is a field that I don't know, it just feels so close to me, even though I'm not like officially a psychologist, but I really care about it. And, you're an honorary, um, honorary therapist. <laughs> well, that, that is an honor. I should start by saying the states of melancholy and the states of depression are very different things. There's nothing that depression has to recommend it the way bittersweetness slash melancholy does. And yet, in the field of psychology, there's not really any distinction made between this state of melancholy slash bittersweetness versus depression. They're just seen as being the same thing. And in fact, like if you put the word melancholy into PubMed, you know, which is one of the databases, the online databases of research papers, you basically just call up a whole bunch of articles on depression. That, that's all there is. Oof. Even though the, these are really not the same states of being, because in, with depression, many people will describe it as a kind of sense of, of numbness, not being alive to other people or to the world. You know, you're just in, in, in a kind of pit of despair. Whereas with bittersweetness, there's a way in which it's the opposite because it's, you're, you're reacting intensely to all of it. That's not to say that there is no relationship between the two. So this is complicated, which I think is what leads to this problem in the first place. Like we found with our bittersweet quiz research that people who score high in bittersweetness, that there is a mild correlation with anxiety and depression, which makes sense, right? Because if you're very intensely reactive to everything, you know, then you are going to feel life's vicissitudes more keenly. And so in some cases, that's going to lead to anxiety and depression. But there's also this other richer form of happiness that it leads to. And that's what gets lost in the way psychology talks about it. Like It's just not even, it's not so much that it's denied, it's that it's not even addressed. It's not... Yes. It's not mentioned. Right. We're not getting answers to questions that haven't been asked because the field has made this lumping of melancholy and depression, and therefore there aren't more nuanced questions that have been asked, although they're starting to be asked. Like that's, That is part of what's emerging from all of this. 
Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. It makes me think about couples. And just like with any, you know, I mean, couples have (laughs) the nature of being part of a couple is you've got to straddle and bridge so many differences, you know, cultural differences and temperamental differences. And so I'm thinking about the relationship with the bittersweet and the chances that two people in a relationship or in a marriage are going to have the same relationship with bittersweetness is probably pretty slim. And then you add to that the fact that in any given moment, like a shared moment, like a graduation or a sporting event or a wedding, one might then be a bit more in touch with the poignancy and the other might be a bit more in touch with the joy. So what guidance might you have for couples so they can kind of hold that dialectic, that both and together versus one being a bit more in touch with the poignancy, the passage of time, the other being more in touch with the joy. And then right there, we've got the conditions for judgment and finger pointing and eye rolling. First of all, just the way you phrase that, there was just so much wisdom and acuity just in the way you phrase that question. So thank you for that. The first thing is just to acknowledge it and understand it. And your mate your your, your partner does not have to have the same orientation that you do. And I would wager that in many, if not most relationships, you're not going to have the same orientation because very often bittersweet types are attracted to uh, kind of unadulterated joy types. Uh, huh. Yeah, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And unadulterated joy types find like a, um, a sort of meaning that bittersweet types will guide them to that they might not access as easily themselves. So it's not a sign of anything being wrong if you're a partner is different from you. It's more that you have to understand it and know that you are probably attracted to your partner precisely because of that difference and that you each have something to give the other in in that difference. And that if you're a bittersweet type listening to this, you are going to have um, a need and a, a yearning to sometimes be around people like you who get it. Because there's just this feeling of like, don't do you get it? Like this this deep, deep thing that I perceive. You need to feel like there are other people around you who get it. But as with everything, it doesn't have to be your partner who experiences life exactly the way you do. You can find that in other people too. Beautiful. Such, such, such important guidance there. Yeah. Thank you. Can I ask you, like in your relationship, how does it work for you? Are you both bittersweet or is it just you? I I think that I definitely am a bit more oriented to the bittersweet than Todd. 
But I'm really lucky that he, you know, when I well up with tears in a moment, I don't think I've ever, my our whole marriage, I've never felt judged by him in that. I think he really accepts and holds on to that that's how I am and that there's benefits to it, even though he's not. So I don't judge him for not welling up in a moment. And I don't feel judged by him for it. But he also, you know, he's he's a master of the grand gesture. So we had our daughter's graduation party last weekend. And he, when we had her baby naming, um, when she was a few months old, he sort of talked to her about five things he loved about her, even though she was about five months old. (laughs) And then at her bat mitzvah, he talked to her again about five things he loved about her. And then at her high school graduation party, you know, in the backyard in front of all of our family and friends, he talked to her again about five things he loves about her. So his, his, you know, he, he has a particular relationship with like that touching in on the passage of time, even though it may not show up as tearfulness or chills in quite the same way, you know, like that sort of embodied sense, he meets those moments in a way that I wouldn't be able to because I would just stand up there and cry my eyes out. So Susan, I have more that I want to, I want to really explore some things that you said about intimate relationships and some really challenging ways that you depathologize, like invite us to embrace this yearning for perfect love. But in order to get us into that, I do want you to talk a little bit about the longing that is embedded as part of bittersweetness, the longing which you describe as momentum in disguise. So can you just help us kind of get our hearts around how bittersweetness and and longing hold together? When I told you that um, from the time I was in that law school dorm, I've been asking that question of what the sad music meant and why did it, not just like why was I listening to it, but also why did it make me so ecstatically happy? Because I, I I actually find sad music to be like a very joyful experience um, to listen to. It's not, it's paradoxically not really sad at all. And it's not just any joy. It's a joy that has to do with love. Like there's this feeling that I get. And I'm guessing you relate to this when you were blasting your Adele in the kitchen, there's this feeling of like, you just feel this incredible love for the musician, for transforming sorrow into something so beautiful. And you feel love for all the other people who are listening to the song, who know the the sorrow that she's expressing in this great, beautiful form. All of it. It's just love. And, and I couldn't understand why that was. And the answer that I found along the way so philosophers and then later neuroscientists, they've been asking this question for centuries. Of like, why do we bother listening to something sad? Why do we go to see a, a sad play? And that's called the paradox of tragedy. But what you realize is that we don't listen to music that is sad and not pleasing. We listen to music that's sad and beautiful. And the same goes for all the art forms. It's the sadness and the beauty together that gets us. Okay, so why is that? And the answer is that at the core, the very heart of our emotional DNA is that we enter this world with this feeling that we come from a more perfect and beautiful place of unconditional love and perfection and that we've now entered the fallen and imperfect world. And so we enter this world 
in tears that we're no longer in the womb. And then we create in all our religions and other forms of creative expression, we create these religions, let's say, because it's the easiest place to see it, uh, where there is a sense of yearning for the Garden of Eden, which is always kind of just around the corner. And we sometimes get to glimpse it, but we're never quite there. And that longing, first of all, we have to just understand that that's part of who we are. And then the second, we can understand that that longing is actually part of our best selves because it's the part of ourselves that knows what perfection looks like and knows what unconditional love looks like, even if just for a moment. We become creative, we become artists, we become you know people who love in the world because we're always trying to get closer to that state, even if we never get to reach it. Oh, 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 okay. So then yearning, as you write, yearning flourishes, like yearning and longing flourish in the realm of romantic love, but yearning and longing don't derive from it. The yearning comes first and romantic love is merely one expression of it. So then you do something that is so like flips, you know, my entire, you know, 20 plus year career on its head. And it's so dangerous and so exquisite and makes so much sense to me. As you say, like rationally, we get it. One person cannot satisfy all of our needs. You know, being mature means embracing imperfections, yada, yada. But you validate our longing for perfect love. You validate that our desire for quote, boundaryless, effortless, endless fulfillment in romantic relationships is, quote, equal to and no different from the music, the waterfall, and the prayer. Longing itself is a creative and spiritual state. So what are you doing to us by (laughs) (laughs) validating this yearning for perfection in our romantic relationships? Well, it's very complicated because um, <laughs> because it requires us to do two things at once, which is to, on the one hand, do everything that you have been saying for 20 years, and I'm totally with you, you know, like understand your partner never is going to be that person of perfect, boundaryless, uh, unconditional love. Um, and yes, part of being able to love here in this world is to create boundaries and respect boundaries and others and all the rest of it. Absolutely. And at the same time, to understand that the reason that you have, I don't mean you, the reason we all have these difficulties is because, or these challenges in getting there in our relationships is because it is our nature. It's our most spiritual nature, if you're comfortable with that word, but you know, it, it's our psychological nature to wish for that place of ultimate union with the beloved. You know, and and like the best expression of this, I find, is through the Sufi poetry, you know, of, of the great poets like Rumi, yep. where there's this one poem in particular that I feel like expresses it so well, where he's talking about a man who was praying to Allah and starts realizing that he's not ever getting an answer back. So he stops praying because he's like, I've never once you know, gotten any sign that there's anyone on the other end who hears me. And then he falls asleep. And in his fitful sleep, he's visited by Hitter, who is the guide of souls, who asks him why he stopped praying. And the man explains why. And what Hitter says to him, and this is in Rumi's language, he says, 
this longing you express is the return message. And the grief you cry out from is what draws you toward union. So like, if you look at all the mystical traditions in our religions, what they're all saying is, you know, to long for that ultimate union is to bring you closer to the union itself. And you really achieved it when when there is no longer any distinction between you and the beloved. And by the beloved, they mean the divine. Like you, when you and the beloved have become one, you, you are both the lover and the loved. That's when you've achieved spiritual union. And so that's what we're longing for psychologically too. And then we have to make sense of that in the here and now in our everyday relationships. But the process of making sense of it is so radically different. You know, when you guide us and encourage us to start from a place of, I crave this endless, boundaryless connection, not because I have an attachment disorder, I have da da da, I have trauma, I have this, but, but because that's a piece of all of us. You know, just like there's such a, I have my hand on my heart right now because there's such a massive invitation to self compassion when we can treat the longing differently. We still have to, as you were saying, live in the real world and have, you know, boundaries and ask for what we need, et cetera, et cetera. But that conversation, that work is really different, I think. I feel it. it. It feels really different when it comes from a place of just relating a bit more tenderly to the longing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, and this is complicated because there is, of course, such a thing as getting into unhealthy relationships out of a sense of codependency, you know, that might be an issue for you because of uh, relationships that you had with a parent, let's say, when you were younger, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's that's all still real and there. And at the same time, you know, even, even if you had uh, the most untroubled childhood relationships in the world, you are still a human with this desire to merge with the beloved and to become one with the beloved. That's part of humanity. And as I say, it's also our best self. Mm-hmm. And then as we work with that, then we open ourselves up. You, you write a little bit later, in the best relationships, you can still every so often go to the moon and back. That you get these glimpses, these moments of that quality of connection, not when you're haggling over the laundry or whatever, but there, but there are these <laughs> moments where you get, you know, you get to go to the moon and back. So what is your sense? What are the practices that help set the stage for us to experience those moments? Not to force them, but to invite them. Sometimes you can't even, there isn't so much you can do. They, they, they come, they come when they want to come. Um, you know, and you, of course we can do all the things that, we all know, like go on date night if you've been together for a long time or, you know, try to take even a day or two away from your everyday routine, which the reason that works so well is because it's literally like saying to your unconscious self, well, now's the time to go to the moon and back because we're not right now mired in the everyday. We're we're now getting to that other place of the, the place of the unseen. That's kind of what you're saying to your psyche. And so you're just opening up the doors for maybe the two of you to go there together. But I think what happens for people, you know, if you think about it, it's so weird when you think about it, how much of popular music has to do with the first moments of coming together, the first moments of attraction in a relationship. Um, And you're like, well, what about all the rest of it? Why are like 90% of the love songs about that 
early moment in time in the life of the relationship. And the reason is, is because that's the moment usually when you feel most acutely this manifestation of the union that we're all looking for. But we still get to go there again, even even in a longer term relationship. It just may not come with the same ease and frequency as it does right at the beginning. Well, even that part, when you're talking about pop music being focused on that, rather than being, you know, I think there are, there are moments when I get critical of that, that we, you know, we elevate falling in love and we, and we don't treat staying in love with the same kind of reverence. It's a lot of my work is around that. But even just that part, you know, it allows me to see those pop songs that, you know, many of which I love in a different light. They're just, you know, an homage to, or a, or a, thank you for that those early glimpses not that they're meant to be held onto not that they're meant to be elevated above everything else but they're but it kind of says these are important because these like like standing in front of a waterfall like appreciating a piece of art these are those those moments that give us that glimpse into the wholeness and the ecstasy one of the really interesting things that i learned from doing this research is that for the original sufi poets they would write this poetry and sing songs that would say things like, you know, you're comparing, um, you know, your cheeks to rubies and like that. And, and those songs were meant to be expressions of divine love. And then apparently what happened is the Western troubadours came along and heard these songs and they started interpreting them in the language of romantic love. But they really were never meant to be that in the first place. They were always meant to be an expression of longing for union with the divine. And if you understand our tradition of song in that light, I think it helps us to understand why it is that that pop music people, is the way Yeah, it is. people were never supposed to be seen in that way because we're just too darn people-y. We're just too darn imperfect. We can't be elevated in, in a sustainable way like that. Uh-huh. I would love for you to talk a bit about um, a story you tell in the book, and actually you talk about it in your TED Talk as well, about the relationship you had with the musician and the question, the life-changing question that your friend asked you about that relationship. Will you tell us that story, please? Yeah, sure. So this was from a time in my life when I was in my early 30s. I was just leaving my corporate law career, which I really never meant to be doing in the first place. And right after I left that, I also left a really a relationship that I'd been in for the previous seven years, also the wrong relationship. So I was in this moment in my early 30s, it's kind of like a state of free fall, you know, no more career, um, no more love. I was just sort of living on my own, floating around um, in New York City, not knowing what was going to come next. In the all important domains of love and work. They were both a gigantic question mark. And I fell into this extremely obsessive relationship with a musician. It was one of those obsessions I just could not get out of. It was driving me crazy. I couldn't stop it. And I had a friend who I was telling about this and, you know, like regaling her with tales of every every single thing he would say during the times I met him and all of this. And and she finally like looked at me one day and she was like, if you are this obsessed, it's not because of this man, literally, it's because he represents something that you're longing for. What is it that you're longing for? 
this really was one of those epiphany moments in my life because I just understood instantly that she was right and that he, being a musician, that he represented the world of art and literature that I had been longing for from the time I was a kid. Um, you know, I had wanted to be a writer since I was four years old and I had turned my back on all of that thinking, you know, that's not real. You can't really make a living as a writer. You have to support yourself, you know, all this stuff. And I realized that I was so obsessed with him because he represented that life that I so much wanted. And the minute she said that, <laughs> seriously, the obsession just melted away. And like the next time I saw him, I didn't feel it anymore. It, it was gone. I was free and I really focused on my writing. I can just imagine that you sharing that story has helped so many people who've heard it. We get so convinced that what's going on for us is about the other person rather than the mirror that that other person is holding up for ourselves. It's such an important story and one that fits so well with this whole journey of this book. Mm -hmm. You know, one more area that I really wanted to explore with you before we move to wrap up is that I think you said some really important things about our own individual painful histories, how we relate to our psychic wounds. I think that this moment, this kind of cultural moment, it's so important. We, I love that mental health is first and foremost. I love that my, you know, the work that I've been doing with individuals and couples, you know, behind my office door for 20 plus years is now so much more being spoken about, you know, in the public arena. And I think all of that is so important. And I think it means that we sometimes focus on our traumas in a particular way. And so you write that we're taught to think of our psychic and physical wounds as the irregularities of our lives, deviations from what should have been, sometimes as sources of stigma. But our stories of loss and separation are also the baseline state right alongside our stories of landing our dream job, falling in love giving birth to our miraculous children. So what is the shift that happens when we stop thinking about our wounds as irregularities and instead as the baseline state? Well, when we think of them as irregularities, that encourages us to fight against them psychically with every fiber of our being, you know, and, and when we look back at the past to say, no, 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 that wasn't supposed to happen. And, you know, and you're, you're kind of like constantly in resistance mode. As you look back, you're, you're almost like somebody watching um, a horror movie and, and, and trying to say to the actor, no, don't go in there, don't go in there, because you know that the actor is about to meet some terrible end if they go in that direction. And, and, you know, and you're constantly looking back at your past self with that same posture, as opposed to just understanding, oh, well, yes, of course, I wish such and such thing hadn't happened, but this is part of what life is too. It's a much more just sort of relaxed an open posture with which to look back at what happened and what didn't happen. It's almost like the equivalent of when you're going through pain, do you curl up and resist it or do you breathe through it? And and breathing through it really literally does make pain easier to bear. Like I, I, I try it all the time. Like if I get a bee sting or something, you know, and, and you breathe, it, it will actually be more manageable. And so understanding that these things are part of the main road and not part of the 
the detour off the road is the equivalent of breathing through pain. It's like, I'm imagining this spectrum that goes from, you know, the one end of the spectrum is what you're saying about like, no, 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 don't go in that room, that really shutting it down, really pushing it away. And the other end of the spectrum is like celebrating it, that because this terrible thing happened, I had the opportunity to this, this, and this, like, you know, that kind of more toxic, positive, like everything happens for Mm -hmm. a reason. And you're saying that there's this middle road where the dark has as much space as the light, where there's more ease and breathing through these as not, yeah, rather than this is a thing that shouldn't have happened. This is a thing that did happen and it gets to sit right alongside everything else. It doesn't take away from everything else. It doesn't count more than everything else. It sits right there with everything else. Yeah. And that I'm not surprised that it happened. There's nothing saying this was supposed to happen or this wasn't supposed to happen. This is all just part of life's vicissitudes and impermanence. This is this is sort of the deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. You write, the love you lost or the love you wished for and never had, that love exists eternally. It shifts its shape, but it's always there. The task is how to recognize it in its new form. How do we recognize it in its new form? Well, it's almost like it has to do with where we first started. You know, we were talking about the adjustments that we need to make when when we become empty nest parents. You know, you could look at that transition as being like, okay, well, that was the greatest time of my life and now it's over. <laughs> That's kind of a bummer. Um, or you could say, well, that was a time of my life where I was focused on one type of a love. And first of all, now the love with our children is going to take on a new form, which we can enjoy in, in just a different way. And also to understand that the the literal physical time that is now freed up makes space for other loves, whether it's a deepening of a love with your partner or loves of friends or or whatever it happens to be. As humans, what we're really built for is love itself. And it's a kind of river that we can keep going back to and and drinking from in very different ways. Because one of the greatest things that we do as humans is bond and attach with another particular human or soul or whatever, we experience the breaking or the disruption of those bonds as it, we can experience it as, as very traumatic. And I think it helps to understand that what never gets disrupted is our relationship to love itself. And that can always be deepened and grown and take on new forms. That makes so much sense. And that is so real. And I think that is something that every listener can touch, you know, even if they can't hold it always, because of course, pain and loss and grief are as they are. But that is, right, that is something that we all know in our bones. So, okay, before we wrap up, um, the bittersweet play. Hello, that's incredible. Can you give us any little like a sneak <laughs> peek about when and how we're going to get to sit and watch bittersweet brought to life in this way? It's so exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And I should say, so I have this newsletter that I do. It's yes. called the Kindred Letters, which I love, 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 love doing. It's 450,000 subscribers around the world, including me. Uh Uh-huh. The kindred letters. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And so you probably know, um, I, I, one of the many things I do with the kindred letters is I give, um, readers updates of what is going on with the bittersweet play. So I actually just sent one out with 
we now have a script. It's like a very, very rough script. Um, but we did a read through last week with some actors, which I had never done anything like that before. And that was really interesting. I just sent for the newsletter subscribers some photos and videos from that. But yeah, it is an ongoing process. And I'm working with Mara Lieberman, who's a theater director. And she herself had a story that is kind of like right out of your podcast because she had um, been in a love affair that broke up and went away for a weekend to try to heal her broken heart. And she went to this retreat center and it was at the retreat center bookstore that she came across Bittersweet. I guess it was like there in the window uh or something. And she said the book just kind of called out to her and she read it and and it helped her through her broken heart. And so she was like, now I want to drop everything and do a play about this. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. So we are collaborating and it's so fun. Oh, I can imagine. I can just imagine how you felt sitting at that table, watching the table read for the first time and seeing this all come to life. That's so exciting. So yes, the Kindred Letters, we've got, we will put a link in the show notes because everybody who is loving this conversation also needs to be on your Kindred Letters newsletter. And I just started a few days ago, the Bittersweet course, which is such a beautiful, like I get a text message from you every morning with um, a completely doable little snippet. I've got my loving kindness meditation to go back to today. So those are a couple of ways people can keep in touch with you. What what else? How else can people be part of the world and learn more about you? Oh gosh, I, I, thank you for asking. I, yeah, I, I guess I would say the most important one or the deepest way right now is through the newsletter because that's where I'm investing so much time and heart right now. And then I am on all the social channels too. So, you know, Facebook and uh, Twitter is at Susan Kane and Instagram. And what's the other one? LinkedIn. I do a lot on LinkedIn also. So you can find me all those places. So you generously agreed to read a little bit to us. And I, uh, it was really obvious to me what I wanted you to read. And so I would love for you to share a bit from the chapter in your book called Coda. Sure. And I loved it, the, the particular paragraph that you asked me <laughs> to read, because I think, so this paragraph is on page 238 of the book, but it's the one that you picked out. And I think of it, despite where in the book it is. I think of it as one of the hearts of the book. Um, And I think you are the first person who has asked me to focus on this paragraph. Okay, so here we go. And maybe you crave perfect and unconditional love, the kind that's depicted in all those iconic advertisements of a glamorous couple driving their convertible around a bend to nowhere. But maybe you're also starting to realize that the heart of those ads is not the dazzling couple, but rather the invisible place to which their shiny car is driving. That just around that curve, the perfect and beautiful world awaits them. That in the meantime, a flame of it is lit inside them. And that glimpses of this elusive place are everywhere, not only in our love affairs, but also when we kiss our children goodnight, when we shiver with delight at the strum of a guitar, when we read a golden truth expressed by an author who died a thousand years before we were born. And maybe you see that the couple will never arrive. And if they do, they won't get to stay. A situation that has the power to drive us mad with desire, which the advertisers hope we will attempt to satiate by purchasing their wristwatch or cologne. 
The world the couple is driving to is forever around the bend. And what should we do with this tantalizing truth? (laughs) I just have chills. I've read this part so many times and it still gives me chills because it just reframes, it just reframes all of it in the most tantalizing, inviting, comforting way. I heard you say recently in an interview that you write books to tell the truth of being alive. So thank you, Susan, for telling the truth of being alive. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so, so much for the work that you do. I absolutely love it. I love it so much um, and really understand your frequency. And thank you for having me on. Thank you, Susan, for joining me here for this enriching and moving conversation. It's clear to me in the wake of reading Bittersweet and having this conversation, just how important these ideas are in the context of our intimate relationships, our family lives, and our personal healing journeys. I hope that you thought about something in a new way while listening to this conversation. And I know that if you have not yet had a chance to read Bittersweet, you're going to be really eager to get your hands on a copy. And that link is in the show notes. Okay, until next time, take good care of yourself. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Katie Pagich of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love. <laughs>